0: Hebrews 20.20 We see Jesus. This is increment 207 and 207 and 208. Those two increments will be entitled A Better Hope for Generations to Come. And in these two increments part one this time, I'll be dealing with a very important element of dealing with any particular biblical book, and I call it atlat, for on the level of our time. And so sometimes prophetic messages don't have to be something that projects into the future necessarily as much as proclaiming something of great, pertinent value into the presence, something eternal into time. And that's what my hope is for these next two messages, in which there'll be a little bit of hammer time. And so, Father, entrusting our spirit into your hands, we ask that you will cause us to realize the reality of Jesus Christ. We don't desire glory. We don't desire the approbation of men. We desire your approval. And we know that that comes by preaching not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. May he be manifested in such a way that the listeners, the careful listeners especially, and even readers, will realize the reality that is Jesus and Jesus as reality indeed. We ask this in his name. Amen. Better hope for generations to come. Part one. And this is from a little brief phrase. Cretanos Elpidos from Hebrews 7.19 In Hebrews you can take any number of hundreds of phrases and make a message out of them in a preaching sense and that's kind of what I'm doing today but again for our own time and I've taken again our little brief excerpt of Better Hope from Hebrews 7.19 which says for the law made nothing complete on the other hand there's the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God I've tried to maintain continuity in our exposition of Hebrews even though exposition is necessarily a messy business compared to what I call the distillation phase of a study of a given biblical document. When it's distilled, it's a lot neater, it's a lot more concentrated, it's meaning much more precisely preserved and conveyed. But I've also strived to let each increment stand on its own as a singular message which can be profitable and edifying even if it's isolated from the other messages, other increments. A good test, and I test myself this way, a good test is to ask if this message was all that a person or that a group of people had while huddled in a bomb shelter in a time of war. Would it be something that would impart hope to the readers Would it be a means of eliciting faith and even of engendering love? Well, the Lord is my judge in this, and only the Holy Spirit can give any message an elevating and saving, edifying, and restorative impact. The bleeding edge of a Hebrews study is how it speaks or better, how it cuts on the level of our own time. This word, in Hebrews itself, is a word of God. This word of God is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword, not least because its first edge cuts into the time in which this homily was written and initially dispatched, and its second edge cuts into our own time and into our own hearts, we could say. On the level of the time of the initial addressees, an inferior hope was being transcended and a better hope offered to the people of God and therefore to the world than the hope that was previously held forth by the law with its cultic order its weak men as priests and archpriests and its multitudinous inefficacious shadow sacrifices and offerings. That better hope was and is embodied in a new archpriest and his once and for all and forever sacrifice which allows for no sequel It's time again that a better hope is offered to the world. And that's the thesis of this and our following increment. It's time again that a better hope is offered to the world than has been presented to it by the church. And I put that in italics for a reason. The church in the main. The message that at least much of the Western church has held forth has to do with a so-called personal salvation that can be the possession of a person who hears the gospel, also in quotes or italics, and believes, repents, or becomes baptized, or all three of these things. It then assures that such a person will, quote, go to heaven When he or she dies, dispensational and fundamentalist groups predict a rapture, and they present that as so called hope, in which Jesus rescues again the church from the coming worldwide tribulation, so called, leaving the hopeless world in an even more hopeless condition with a high probability of being duped by italics, the antichrist, with faint hopes of escaping or refusing the mark of the beast and of being disposed of in the lake of fire to be tormented for ages without end, along with the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. All of this, if not most of this, is from a terribly misleading, misreading of the book of Revelation, which some still insist on calling Revelations, as if you can break up this wonderful apocalypse into isolated parts. This so-called gospel, Paul would say it's not a gospel at all, Presents the dualistic narrative of a double outcome of the Last Judgment, in quotes, with some, a minority of course, being saved and going to heaven, and with others, the unfortunate majority of human beings, being thrown into a sea of fire to be endlessly tormented. Not the gospel, for sure. Not even a gospel at all. Because in case we've forgotten, and perhaps in case we didn't even know, gospel means good news. Think of the hope, so-called, of this so-called gospel, and consider how there is obviously the need of the bringing in of a better one. This other gospel of which we've been speaking, promises a relationship with God. That which Hebrews calls a drawing near to God. But what kind of relationship, and this is my question, what kind of relationship can one have with the God of this gospel? In fact, let's dare ask this. Is the God of this gospel, the God whom the Bible says is love or is he more like the God of this age, Second Corinthians three or four four that is, four four, who delights in blinding the unbelieving, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ shines into their hearts. Now, there are many scripture references that will be in the printed version. I'm not going to do that, because, give them all in the oral presentation because it'll, it'll cause the flow to be a little hindered. So if you, I urge you to read these messages if you are interested and if you're motivated. And I also urge you to even look up the verses. There's a lot of times I repeat certain verses. There's a reason for the repetition. Further question, is the Jesus that this gospel speaks of the same Jesus whom Paul proclaimed as the Christ in whom all things in the heavens and on earth are to be gathered, having been reconciled by his death? And is this the same Jesus to whom Peter alluded Powerfully, when speaking of all of the prophets from time immemorial in whom God spoke univocally of the restoration of all things? Or John, who recorded the voice of the enthroned God, whom he heard say, Look, I'm making all things new. Or is the Jesus of this other gospel another Jesus. Yeah, Paul used that very phrase in 2 Corinthians 11. Another Jesus, subsidized by the adversary who is an expert in disguising himself as an angel of light and whose ministers, so-called, are disguised as servants of righteousness. If you look for more than two seconds at them, you'll find that their righteousness is a Self-righteousness, which is not only not any righteousness at all, but it's downright evil. Here's another question. Is the spirit who excites exuberant worship services that precede and follow sermons that speak of God's love, so-called, while warning of an endless hell of torment for the noncompliant? Is it the spirit of the world? It's a fair question. Or the spirit of God, whom the Bible says reveals things that are freely given to us by God. And who pours out the love of God in our hearts. Is it the Holy Spirit? Through whose agency and power the God of hope, causes hope to overflow in us? Or is it another spirit? Yeah, Paul uses that too, as he uses another gospel and another Jesus. Is it another spirit, the one not received by Paul and the apostles, or the 120 Jews in the upper room on Pentecost, or the house full of Gentiles in the home of Sergeant Major Cornelius of the Italian cohort. Here's a thesis for you of this and the next increment. It's time again for a better hope. Not that there's a better hope than the hope that is Jesus, the great archpriest. But I'm speaking of a better hope than that which has been held forth by the evangelical church and by traditional Christianity. That's our thesis. I'll say it again. It's time again for a better hope. Not that there's a better hope than the hope that is in and embodied in Jesus, the great archpriest, but a better hope than that which has been held forth by the evangelical church and by traditional Christianity. Christianity. Seeing the writing on the wall. Ever heard that phrase before? It's become a dead metaphor in our time. It still works, kind of. For example, when someone sees the obvious signs that they are about to be laid off from a job, they say the handwriting's on the wall or the writing's on the wall. Or when a marriage is about to end. Evidence has accumulated to the point where an inevitability is detected. But the reason this metaphor is really a dead metaphor is because, on the whole, it's been detached from its source, namely chapter 5 of the prophetic biblical book of Daniel. That chapter contains the account of a vast party thrown by Belshazzar, the godson, or the grandson, rather, of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar and 1,000 of his nobles and their wives gathered for this feast. During this huge bash, Belshazzar and his guests drank toasts to their idolatrous gods out of the gold and silver vessels that had been taken in the sacking of the temple in Jerusalem by his the armies of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. In the course of this monstrous Mardi Gras, the fingers of a man's hand conspicuously appeared and were seen inscribing a message on the wall of the banquet hall. Daniel was called upon and called out of retirement, as it were, to interpret the mystical message that was written on the wall written in Persian. And Daniel received the revelation of it from the Most High God. He's called the Most High God there to distinguish him radically from the gods that they were toasting from the chalices taken from the temple in Jerusalem. The message meant that the king and his kingdom had been, quote, weighed in the balances and had been found wanting or lacking. And that his kingdom was to be imminently replaced by the Medes and the Persians. And indeed it was. Well, that's the bare outline. But the parallel is this. The hope held out by the so-called church at this time has been weighed in the balances and shown to fall way short of the hope that the God of hope desires to be held forth to the world which is currently without hope and without God who whether they know it or not have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Someone may say And this has been often used. Well, at least Christ is being preached. Paul rejoiced that even those who were his enemies, or those who are really his rivals, preached Christ. And that's true. If you read Philippians 1.18, Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached even by those who were envious of him. Even though they had the wrong motives. Oddly, though they had the wrong motives, they had the right message. But Paul did not rejoice, and I hope you get this straight. Paul did not rejoice in the preaching of another Christ, which is very close to where much of the church is today. And you'll see, sometimes I use the word church, I have it enclosed in quotes. Here's a principle for you. Paul rejoiced in other people preaching the right Christ, but he never rejoiced in the preaching of another Christ. To preach a gospel without hope for all is to preach a Christ who is not for all and not a savior of all. A Christ who is not for all and who does not ultimately save all is another Christ than the one presented in the true gospel. And the hope held out by a so-called gospel that does not recognize his all-saving significance is not offering the only hope that the gospel of God about his son announces, namely, the hope of God showing mercy to all. In Romans 11.32. So the professing evangelical church, as it calls itself, has been weighed in the divine balances and found wanting. It's come up short as far as the work of offering hope to a hopeless world and sufficient hope to the emerging and coming generations. The ones coming up now and the ones that will come up. Like the church at Sardis who had the reputation of being a lively church. Oh, they're a lively church. Look at them dance and sway and bang their tambourines and fall over when the preacher prays for them. A lively church. That was a reputation. But who were in reality and in the view of the son of man, in his view, they were dead. 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 That's Revelation 3.1. And whose works, so-called, no doubt about which they were very proud and boastful in their bulletins, their works, he found to be incomplete in the sight of his God. That's the Son of Man to whom God entrusted all judgment. That's Revelation 3.2. The evangelical church of our own time similarly has come up short in the work of offering a sufficient hope to the world and to the emerging generations of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, In case you're misunderstanding me, I don't say this to pronounce judgment. All judgment has been entrusted by God to the Son of man, and I'm not him john five twenty seven The Son of Man, who was judged for us, who judged the seven churches in Revelation two and three, and who will judge the quality of every person's work in the day of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.13 and four, 5. I'm not saying that the church is altogether disapproved and all its members disqualified from reward and certainly never would say disqualified from salvation because no one is. If God has entrusted all judgment to the Son of Man, that doesn't leave any room at all for me or anyone else, including me, to judge. Paul wisely counsels, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. After all, by definition, what is the church? The true church consists of people in whom God has evoked faith in Jesus as the Son of God. The church is, by definition, a household of faith, in Galatians 6, 2. I'm merely saying, however, that the church and all of us as members in particular of the church, which is Christ's body, are accountable. To offer a better hope than has generally been presented by those who profess to be God's people, i.e. Christians, up to now. To offer this better hope is none other than to, quote, proclaim Jesus Christ according to the revelation or the apocalypse of a mystery. The mystery of God's will which is his great intention to gather up all things redemptively in Christ, his son, and our great archpriest. Ephesians one ten and Hebrews 8.1. Through faith we understand is the beginning clause of Hebrews 11.3. The church may have faith, and certainly the true church does, but does it yet have the understanding brought about through faith that Jesus Christ's faithfulness has brought about the salvation of the world? It's not for nothing that Paul prays for the saints in Colossae, and therefore for us all, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So in Colossians one nine before saying, he praised this before saying in Colossians 1.19 and twenty, for God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth Or things in heaven. You have spiritual understanding of that? That's what Paul prayed for. And I echo his prayer from my heart. For the church. And for the world today. It should be noted again that it is by a better hope that we draw near to God. In Hebrews 7.19. Our relationship with God better probably described as koinonia fellowship, is connected to our hope. Our fellowship with God is complete to the degree that our hope in him is complete. This hope is not ashamed, says Romans 5.5, because the love of God is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us in Romans five five again, perfected or completed love, verse John two five and four17 to eighteen, is inextricably linked to a hope of complete and universal redemption. Love for all mankind in First Thessalonians 3:12 is inextricably linked. To the hope that all mankind will be redeemed along with all of time, all of history, and all of creation. All of time, Ephesians 5.16, Joel 2.25, he restores the years that the locust has eaten. All of history, Ephesians 1.10-11, in the fullness of time's And all of creation, Romans 8, 19 to 23, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. So the same Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts is the Holy Spirit through whose power. The God of hope causes hope to overflow in us as we believe in God's love for all. And by hope, we always mean confident expectation. These three remain. Even now, in this evil age, they remain on the forward line of troops. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But not love detached or divorced from faith, because faith works by love, and love believes all things. Not love detached or divorced from hope, because hope is unashamed precisely because of love, and love hopes all things. Please look up the verses for these that I have in the printed version of today's Oral communication this love is the love that's described so eloquently by bernard lonergan who wrote this quote it is a religious experience by which we enter into a subject to subject relation with god it is the eye of faith that discerns god's hand in nature and his message in revelation It is the efficacious reality that brings men to God despite their lack of learning or their learned errors. It is in this life the crown of human development, grace perfecting nature, the entry of God into the life of man so that man comes to love his neighbor as himself. What a sublime little partial paragraph. So I say it's so much easier, and I think you might agree with this because it even reaches the lofty realm of common sense. It is so much easier to love all of humankind as we're commanded in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 if we recognize that all of humankind are destined for a final, complete salvation and have in fact been reconciled to God in Christ's death. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.14, 5.19, Colossians 1.20, etc. This is what I call love in harmony with hope, a better hope, than the church at large, at least in the West. There are elements of the Eastern Church ever since the patristic era that have been holding out and holding forth the hope of a universal restoration. But I say, when I say Hope needs to be, a better hope needs to be offered. I'm talking about the one that the Western church, so-called, has traditionally offered to a hopeless world. Not really filling up a hopeless world with hope. So when I say hopeless world, I don't mean hopeless in the sense of that horrible insult that someone is irredeemable horrible, self-righteous, self-serving, self-absorbed and self-deceived thing to say about someone that they're irredeemable. What's irredeemable is the old self in all of us. So I don't say irredeemable when I say that the world is without hope. I don't mean hopeless in the sense that the world of humanity is irredeemable but that the world of human beings and human beings in this world are generally subjectively speaking without hope. means they don't have it. They don't have it in them. They don't treasure in themselves the hope of the gospel. I speak this as someone who's been there. I know what that means. I know what that feels like, to have no hope and to live in a kind of, well... Hopelessness, a kind of disguised despair. A kind of subdued despair that ultimately you can't keep subduing. The world in general doesn't treasure in themselves the hope of the gospel, as it's called in Colossians one twenty-three, which is related to, as you, if you read it carefully, the sound of the gospel going out, into all creation. The hope of the gospel, therefore, is the confident expectation of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, in Colossians 1.20. The, recapit- the recapitulation of everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ in Ephesians 1 9-11. The recovery of all that was lost in Luke 1910 compared with John 6.12, and do that sometimes, sometime on your own. Compare Luke 19.10 with John 6.12. The redemptive return of everything and every being to God in Romans 11.36. The glorious apocalyptic culmination called God being all in all in 1 Corinthians 15.28. This is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the heavenly man into whose image we all are to be conformed completely in the extremity of our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15.49, compared with John 6.40 and 2 Corinthians 4.4, whose glory is destined, Christ's glory is destined, it says, to fill up the whole earth, in Habakkuk 2.14, including all of its burial sites, 1 Corinthians 15:51 to 52 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This is the better hope that I'm talking about, and this is the better hope by which we draw near to God and truly have a relationship with him, with the God of hope. In Romans fifteen thirteen, the God of love and peace in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. 1 Thessalonians five twenty-three, Hebrews thirteen twenty, the God of all grace, first Peter five ten, whose great intention, Isaiah nine five, Septuagint in Ephesians one nine to eleven, is to show saving mercy to all. The church, or at least the part of the professing church, has been found wanting in offering this hope to the world. But this church that has been found wanting need not remain wanting. It need not keep falling short of this great commission and mission. It can open itself up to this understanding. Not only the church at large, but individuals. It can open itself up to the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29 instead of insulting him. It can receive repentance from God to the acknowledgement of the truth of the universal reconciliation that is embodied in Jesus who is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 It can cherish this hope and then communicate it it can open itself up to a spiritual understanding that truly comes to know and to understand that God delights in showing faithful love and saving justice and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah nine twenty four, Father, let this be so. Let the church and let hundreds, thousands, even millions of believers in the future beginning now, open themselves up to the Holy Spirit to receive this wondrous revelation of the reality of Jesus Christ. I ask it in his name. Amen.